Uh, Each year, the Global Livability Report is released. And in it, 140 cities from all over the world are assessed and given a total score out of 100, covering the categories of stability, healthcare, culture and environment, education and infrastructure. And uh, this year, for the seventh consecutive year, uh, the city that was ranked number one as the most livable city in the world was Melbourne. <laughs> Melbourne. Boo! Melbourne. There's got to be some sort of a mistake, surely. But Melbourne wasn't the only Australian city to come in the top ten. No, the other two were Adelaide coming in fifth place and Perth coming in seventh. Apparently boring was one of the categories they looked at too. <laughs> As for good old Sydney, well, I'm afraid to say we didn't make the top ten this year. Not quite. We still came, however, we came in a very respectable 11th place with 94.9 percentage points, making our city still a very good place in which to live. That's not bad, is it? You know, to think that Australia has four of the top 11 most livable cities in the world. And that's almost all of our cities, isn't it? really shows that we, we, have, we have it very good here in this country. And I know that we like to bag at our leaders in Australia, that it's uh, something of a national pastime for us. But we can't deny the fact that our high standard of living comes as a direct result of the good governance over the years. Because the fact is, wise leadership brings blessing. Wise leadership brings blessing. When the courts are upholding justice and the schools have well-trained teachers, when hospitals are adequately funded, when border security is strong and good economic policies are put in place, the result is a pretty awesome society in which to live. If you don't believe me, then maybe you'd like to spend some time living under the leadership of a, in a place like, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe North Korea. Or Syria, perhaps. It's true, isn't it? Blessings flow from wise leadership. That's exactly what we see in today's passage from 1 Kings. Now, if you don't already have a brand new church Bible open in front of you, can I encourage you to grab one now and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. It's page 519 of the small print Bibles and 519 of the large print Bibles, or depending on which side of 40 you are on, apparently. Now, last week we saw that the great King David has now died and his son Solomon has taken the throne of Israel. And from the outset of today's passage, we see how, just how strong and mighty the nation has become. How we see it in Solomon's alliance with Egypt as he marries Pharaoh's daughter, It's an indication of the kind of power that Israel now wields in the region. We also see it in the fact that uh, the Israelites are now worshipping God at the numerous high places throughout the land. Those are hilltop altars formerly used for pagan worship by the previous inhabitants. Now being used by the Israelites in their worship of God. Showing that they are the ones who now possess the land. 
And so here we have a strong and mighty nation led by King Solomon, a man who loves God and who now shows that love by offering a thousand burnt offerings to him. Here, read with me from chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. That was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And so Israel is now a powerful nation, led by King Solomon, a man who loves the Lord. And so it is that one night God speaks to Solomon in a dream and makes him the most extraordinary offer. He promises to give Solomon absolutely anything he wants. He's just got to name it. Anything in the whole wide world. An extraordinary offer, isn't it? wonder what you would ask for. Well, it doesn't take long for Solomon to come up with his answer. He asks for wisdom. Because Solomon realises that the task of, of leading the great nation of Israel is one that's well beyond him. As an inexperienced 20-year-old, Solomon feels as inadequate as a little child. He knows that if he's going to keep this nation united and strong and, and prosperous, then it's going to take the wisdom, of, the wisdom of Solomon in order to achieve that. Or, or better still, he knows that it's going to take the wisdom of God to do that. And so that's exactly what he asks for, the wisdom of God. Well, it's a request that pleases God so much that he promises not only to make Solomon the wisest man ever, but also to give him all the stuff he didn't ask for too, including great wealth and honour. Here, read with me from verse 5. Verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and did not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings, 
And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. So so Solomon asks God for wisdom, wisdom to lead the people. And God is pleased with him. And and now in the rest of today's passage, we we see that wisdom at work. And and we see the blessings that flow from it. Beginning with the story of two prostitutes who one day come to Solomon with a baby, each one claiming that she is the baby's mother. Sadly, it seems that the baby of one of these women has died and And she's now falsely claiming the living baby as her own. But who's lying here? And and who's telling the truth? Will Solomon have the wisdom to work out who the real mother is? With with absolutely no evidence to go on? Will he be able to to deliver justice in this case? Well, amazingly, he is. Using a most unorthodox method. Here, read with me from verse 16. Verse 16. Now, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, I saw that it it wasn't the son I had borne. The other woman said, no, the the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. Well, that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe 
because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. As I said, it's a pretty unorthodox method of making a judgment, isn't it? But it's absolutely brilliant. In fact, perhaps I'll even try it next time my children are fighting over a toy. (laughs) I had it first! No, I had it first! And I'll be like, get me a sword! (laughs) But in all seriousness, Solomon, Solomon shows himself here to be a wise judge. A wise judge providing justice for a woman on the lowest rung of society. He's a a king who, with God's wisdom, can bring justice to all. No wonder, then, that this story makes the headline news throughout Israel. And then as we move into chapter 4, we hear of how, in the following years, Solomon uses his God-given wisdom to govern the great nation of Israel. And so if you glance there with me at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4, Uh, You'll see names of the people Solomon appoints to help him administer various internal affairs of the nation. And and then in uh, verses 7 to 19, uh, you'll see the men Solomon appoints as governors uh, throughout Israel. uh, Governors responsible for for upholding his rule in the the various districts of the land and uh, raising the revenue necessary for supporting his central government. And the result of all this wise governance? Well, under Solomon's rule, Israel is a nation that's both prosperous and secure. Prosperous and secure. The people are well fed and happy, lacking nothing at all. And they're safe and secure, living at peace with one another and with the nations around them with Solomon's impressive cavalry ensuring that that stays the case. Here, read with me, chapter 4, verse 20. Chapter 4, verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And now jump down with me to verse 25, verse 25. During Solomon's lifetime... Judah and Israel, from Dan to Pesheba, that's like saying from Darwin to Hobart, from top to bottom, everyone, they all lived in safety. Everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district governors, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. And so do you see, do you see, under Solomon's wise rule, the people of Israel now enjoy prosperity and security. They're blessed by his judicial and administrative wisdom but they're blessed by his talents in the arts and sciences too. Because besides being a political genius, Solomon also writes thousands of proverbs and songs 
many, of course, which we find recorded for us even today elsewhere in the Bible, like, like the, the likes of, of the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and the Song of Solomon. And on top of all this, Solomon's even an expert on, on plants and animals too. He's, he's a Renaissance man, centuries before the Renaissance. In fact, he so distinguishes himself that foreign kings start sending their people to learn from him, that they too might benefit from his wisdom. Here, read with me these final verses from verse 29. Chapter 4, verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. Wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol. Obviously, these guys are the Einsteins of the day, okay? And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And so I'm sure you'd agree, Solomon's wisdom is very, very impressive. And it brings justice and prosperity and security to the people of Israel, and even makes an impact on the surrounding nations too. I mean, wouldn't you have just have loved to have been there to, to hear Solomon sing one of his songs, or uh, maybe to hear him teach, you know, hear him giving one of his lectures? It must have been an amazing time in which to live. But you know, whilst, whilst these two chapters in 1 Kings are incredibly positive about Solomon. I can't help but see in them some things that bother me. Uh, certain troubling details, and maybe you notice them too. You know, like, like the fact that Solomon marries an Egyptian princess. Did you notice that? Now, I know there's great political gain in him doing that, but, but what about God's command forbidding intermarriage with people of other nations because otherwise their idolatry would lead them astray. And then there's the fact that the Israelites are worshipping at the old pagan high places. Do you notice that? Now, now granted, the, the temple hasn't been built yet and they were worshipping the one true God, but hadn't God told them that they were to destroy all the high places. So why hasn't Solomon done something about that? Then there's the story of the two prostitutes with the baby. And, and I know that Solomon shows great wisdom in working out who the real mother is. But, but my question is, what's he doing allowing prostitution in the land in the first place? Hadn't God's law forbidden that too? And then finally, there's the matter of Sol Solomon's great cavalry. Impressive indeed, very impressive. But then, didn't God specifically say that Israelite kings were not 
to acquire excessive numbers of horses, but rather to trust him to protect them? It seems to me that that Solomon has so much going for him here in these chapters. He he obviously, he loves the Lord. He humbly acknowledges his need for God's wisdom. And yet as wise as he is, there appears to be certain hairline fractures, let's say, in Solomon's character. I guess we could call them wisecracks. Hairline fractures that will, as we'll see in the coming weeks, continue to widen. Meaning that in the end, all the justice, prosperity, security that Solomon's wisdom has brought Israel will not last. In fact, did you know that never again will the nation of Israel reach the heights that it does during this particular period of its history? Because even though God blesses Solomon with so much wisdom, just like the rest of us, he's an unrighteous sinner. And so his failures will eventually lead to the kingdom's downfall, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. But but there is hope. There is hope because many years after Solomon, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of another king who, who, who would come. A king who, unlike Solomon, will reign with both wisdom and righteousness. A wise, sinless ruler who is none other than the Lord himself. He read with me from Jeremiah chapter 23, up on the screen. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous saviour. It's Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus. He's the one of whom Jeremiah speaks. He's the promised wise and righteous king. Jesus, the son of God, who who became like us in every way except sin. Jesus, the one who didn't just receive wisdom from God, but who is the very source of wisdom in the first place. That's why Jesus could stand up in a huge crowd one day and declare about himself, now one greater than Solomon is here. Because you see, unlike Solomon, Jesus is perfect in wisdom and perfect in righteousness. Solomon... Well, he was able to bless his people with a degree of justice and prosperity and security for a time. But Jesus, he is able to bless his subjects with ultimate justice and prosperity and security forever. What do I mean by that? Well, 
let's start by thinking about how in the first coming, our wise King Jesus has brought these things to us. He has brought us justice. When Jesus came into this world, he blessed us, his people, with justice. Dying on a cross in order to pay the penalty of our sins. Jesus taking our punishment upon himself that we might be justified before God. That we might now live as free men and women without fear of judgment, without fear of condemnation. He has blessed us with justice. And he's brought us prosperity too. Because now as we trust in Jesus, we can experience life as God intended it. Life to the full, with joy and meaning and purpose, no matter what our circumstances. Jesus satisfies our deepest spiritual hunger. And he's even promised to provide for all our physical needs too, as we put him first. Because of Jesus, we are rich beyond belief regardless of our bank balance. And he's brought us security too. Defeating our great enemies of death and the devil. Promising to stand beside us to the very end of the age. Now we have nothing to fear. Now we are safe and secure in Christ. Do you see? Jesus has already brought us justice and prosperity and security. But of course, that's not where it ends, is it? Because we know that there's even more of these things to come when Jesus returns and ushers in his new order, a new heavens and earth. In terms of justice, at that time, he will judge all evildoers and reward all his faithful ones. Everyone will get what they deserve. If you've been a victim of injustice, then take heart, won't you? It will not always be so. In terms of prosperity, friends, the the day's coming. The day's coming when we will feast at the king's table in our eternal home. We will lack nothing ever again. If you currently struggle to make ends meet, take heart, won't you? It will not always be so. And in terms of security, well, the time's coming when Satan and all who follow him will be banished forever. Our own sin will be gone forever. If you're someone who lives in fear of terror, war, sickness, or death, take heart, won't you? It will not always be so. Friends, I know it's true that that we here in Australia have it so good. 
certainly compared to many places in the world we do. And, you know, we really should thank God for the leaders he's given us over the years and their wise governance that has brought us so many blessings. And we should pray that God will continue to give us wise leaders into the future. But, friends, let's face it. This place, it's far from perfect. The nightly news reminds us that there is still much injustice, poverty and and insecurity in the land. There's domestic violence and theft, bullying. There's homelessness and unemployment. There are international tensions and, and terror threats. And in today's passage, we see why. We see that no matter how good our human leaders might be, at the end of the day, they are bound to let us down. Because all of them, just like Solomon, they're all sinful, finite human beings, incapable of giving us what our hearts really long for. But Jesus... Jesus is our perfectly wise and perfectly righteous king. And one day, we who follow him will live with him in the new Jerusalem. The most livable city ever. Yeah, even better than Melbourne, okay? The new Jerusalem with 100% justice, 100% prosperity. 100% security. Oh, friend, can you imagine? Can can you imagine? No police. No jails. No family law courts. No hungry children. No one sleeping out on the streets. No airport security checks. No locks on doors. No ambulances. No hospitals. No funerals. Just life and joy and peace forever. Everyone doing what's right all the time every stomach full, every fear, a distant memory as we trust one another completely. Oh, can you imagine? Won't it be wonderful? Yes, it will be wonderful. And so let's enjoy our blessings now and let's be thankful for them, but let's never ever be satisfied with what this world offers us because friends, for you and me, the best is yet to come. And it's all because of Jesus, our perfectly wise and righteous king. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank and and praise you for giving us Jesus. We thank and, and praise you that he is our perfect king, wise and righteous in every way, and the one who has blessed us even now with justice and prosperity and security and And the one who gives us the sure hope of of experiencing these blessings fully and eternally in the new creation. 
Lord, thank you also for our country, Australia, and for our leaders. Thank you for the blessings we enjoy here through their leadership. Please do help those who rule over us to govern wisely into the future. Oh, but Father, please help us to always keep a right perspective, knowing that only Jesus can give us the ultimate justice and prosperity and security our hearts long for. Father, as citizens of his eternal kingdom, please help us to always live for Jesus, serving and enjoying him as we wait patiently for his glorious return. In our perfect King's name we pray.